two words or less, we're going deep. And you may think, where does John get all these ideas? Well, this one was not my fault. This thought about going deep actually started a little over a year ago when someone gave me this book. And it's called The Psalms, Poetry on Fire. It's a 2.0 version, if you will, of, of the Psalms. And so I got to reading through this. And one of the things I like about it is the author leaves some notes at the bottom. And he explains maybe um, something that had to do with culture or something that had to do with specific words, Hebrew words. And, and he kind of gives some explanation at the beginning of the book as to, to why he went on this journey and why he, you know, his goal wasn't that there was something wrong with the original Psalms and the way they were written. He just, in his own journey on going deep, if you will, he, he came up with this concept, and I thought, wow. So I've read through it a couple times. I've, I've written in this book. I've made some notes. And then I found it. Psalm 92. And that's where we're going to be at today. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Psalm 92. In just a second, I'm going to share with you from Poetry on Fire, the version of the author of Psalm 92. But the, the purpose for this mini-series, if you will, is just that. I want us to go deep. What do most of you know about the Psalms? What's your favorite Psalm? 37, okay. Why? Okay, God's encouragement in spite of man's bad behavior. See, you trumped my whole illustration there, but thank you. Most, most people that I've asked, and maybe I asked the wrong question, what's the Psalm you hear the most? Psalm 23. And as I asked that question to people these last few weeks, and I'd ask them about, what do you know about the Psalms? And almost everybody would say, well, I know Psalm 23. Well, we know that because everybody reads it when you go to a funeral. And so we, we hold on to some of the things that are in Psalm 23. Sometimes people will say Psalm 150 or Psalm 151. Those are, those are kind of common Psalms that we know. And as I started reading through this, and, and seeing the Psalms from a different light, if you will. And then going back to my Bible and going, does, the, does, the, does it really say that same kind of thing? Is that thought still what it was in the beginning when it was written? And I thought, yeah, it is. And so out of that came this opportunity that we have the next few weeks to go deeper into the Psalms. And I've picked a few different Psalms that I just thought, well, let's see what these are really all about. But before we get any further... Let's pause for a moment of prayer. Will you pray with me? Father God, I ask that this morning you be with us. And as we look at your word, as we go deeper into your word, it's dangerous territory. Because as we expose the truths from your word, that means we have to change ourselves. And so I pray that you will give us insight from your word, Lord. I pray that you will give us understanding of, of these psalms. And as we look at them, maybe from a different perspective, for a new scope, that you would just open our hearts, open our minds to what's been laid before us in your word. In your son's name, I pray. Amen. Let me read this to you. Matter of fact, don't even look at me. Like, like just kind of... Close your eyes, put your heads down. Just let this psalm wrap you up a little bit. Here says a Sunday morning song of praise. 
It is so enjoyable to come before you with uncontainable praises spilling from our hearts. How we love to sing our praises over and over to you, to the matchless God, high and exalted over all. At each and every sunrise, we will be thanking you for your kindness and your love. As the sun sets and all through the night, we will keep proclaiming you are so faithful. Melodies of praise will fill the air as every musical instrument joined with every heart overflows with worship. Are you seeing this? No wonder I'm so glad. I can't keep it in. Lord, I'm shouting with glee over all you've done for all you've done for me. What mighty miracles and your power at work, just to name a few. Depths of purpose and layers of meaning saturate everything you do. Such amazing mysteries found within every miracle that nearly everyone seems to miss. Those with no discernment can never really discover the deep and glorious secrets hidden in your ways. It's true the wicked flourish, but only for a moment, foolishly forgetting their destiny with death, that they will all one day be destroyed forevermore. But you, O Lord, are exalted forever in the highest place of endless glory, while all of your opponents, the workers of wickedness, they will perish forever separated from you. Your anointing has made me strong and mighty, You've empowered my life for triumph by pouring fresh oil over me. You've said that those lying in wait to pounce on me would be defeated, and now it's happened right in front of my eyes, and I've heard their cries of surrender. Yes, look how you've made all your lovers to flourish like palm trees, each one growing in victory, standing with strength. You've transplanted them into your heavenly courtyard where they are thriving before you. For in your presence they will still overflow and be anointed. Even in their old age they will stay fresh, bearing luscious fruit and abiding faithful. Listen to them. With pleasure they still proclaim, You're so good. You're my beautiful strength. You've never made a mistake with me. When you look at the New American Standard Version... created it and how he rested on the Sabbath day. And, and here David has written this psalm. Some people suggest that Psalm 92 was actually written by Adam um, when, when God shared with them about the Sabbath day that he rested. But I don't agree with that because the psalm talks about enemies. And at that point, Adam didn't have any enemies. So I'm, I'm of the camp that says David wrote this song. I'll find out. Sabbath day. Uh, by the way, this is the only psalm in the Hebrew text of the psalm or the psalter. 
designated as kind of a direction for Sabbath. It suggests that our psalm focuses on the area of worship. And those first three verses that I've read to you confirm this. They emphasize the worthiness of worship, if you will. That's going to kind of be our focus today as we go deep in Psalm 92. When David says it is good to give thanks to the Lord, I think we fail to fully grasp the fact that worship is a delight, is a pleasure. You see, we've been conditioned to view the word good as meaning something beneficial, typically beneficial to us. And for example, all of you can probably remember your mother telling you, take this, it's good for you. Eat this, it's good for you. I don't know about you, but things like castor oil and spinach may be good for us in the utilitarian sense that they are no pleasure by any means. George Bush even banned broccoli from the White House while he was president. It may have been good for him, but he didn't like it. What David's getting at here is that for us to understand that worship is good, that it's pure pleasure to those who truly love God. And then again, it's also true that worship is good for us. See, it benefits us when we worship. This aspect of worship is more fully developed in Psalm 95, which, by the way, I want you all to write that down. Write down Psalm 95 on your paper, on your Bible, on your smartphone, on your tab, whatever it is you're writing on, write it on your neighbor's arm. No, don't do that. But write down Psalm 95. Because this aspect of worship is more fully developed in Psalm 95, and I want to challenge you all to read Psalm 95 every day for the next three weeks. I don't care when you read it, morning, noon, night, on your coffee break at work, whatever, but I want to challenge everybody the next three weeks, to read Psalm 95. It develops that aspect of worship. What else does worship do? Worship brings about positive results in our lives. There's another sense in which good refers to worship as it's appropriate. It's appropriate. It is morally good. It is proper, if you will, for us to respond to God with praise. God's activity in the world is intended to bring praise to himself. We get a glimpse of this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Jesus also told the woman at the well that God was seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. See, it's good to worship. Worship is perhaps, perhaps the most worthy of all activities for us. It brings pleasure to God. It brings pleasure to us as well. We also learn from verses 1 through 3 in Psalm 92 that some of these manifestations of worship... If we look at them, not only does worship have benefits, but it takes on a variety of forms. There are several expressions that are used in these verses to describe the acts of worship which are encouraged. In verse 1, the first one is to give thanks. Typically, we think about thanks during what month? November! We think about Thanksgiving. What are we thankful for? It's good that we should think think about thankfulness every day. Because it's good 
to give thanks to the Lord. Did you know that there is no one expression in the Hebrew language, language which is equivalent to our expression of thanks? There's not just one word for that. So when we, think, when we speak of giving thanks to the Lord, we're talking more about praise than simply thanksgiving. When we talk about thanks to the Lord, we are acknowledging God for who He is, for His actions, for what He's done in our lives, what He's provided. The next expression of worship is, is in the second half of verse 1. Singing praises, and to sing praises to your name almost high. This is actually the verb form of the word psalm. In that, in that uh, subscript I told you about singing praises is, is psalm. So the worship of God is expressed by praising Him. And this is a psalm about a Sabbath, but it's about praising God on the Sabbath. Verse 3 takes us deeper into the subject of musical praise. Singing praises is surely one form of worship. But in this third verse, we're taught that singing with musical accompaniment may be more expiring. Inspiring, not expiring. Sorry. When I sing without musical accompaniment, it's expiring to those who are listening. Verse 3 says, With a ten-string lute, with a harp, with a resounding music upon the lyre. You see, David reminds us that our singing, our worship is often enhanced when it's accompanied by musical instruments. I know, as I was saying, in my sake, it's kind of drowned out by the musical instruments and everyone's glad. I don't know what kind of noise I make. I like to think it's a joyful noise before the Lord, but that's why I sit up in the front so I don't offend anybody around me. I know I'm not the only one either. Uh, <laughs> but David reminds us that when we sing, it's enhanced by the music. Music is a significant part of our worship because it's one way that we can express our gratitude and our adoration towards God. The word used to describe another aspect of worship is declare from verse 2. Now it's impossible for any definition to really encompass the broad sense of this word. It often means to make known. To declare means to make known. It's used in the sense of revealing something that is not known. Bringing it to the surface. Making it public. Making whatever was not known, known. It, in an even broader sense, we can, take, we can make something public that has been private. Here's what I mean by that. For us, worship involves pro proclaiming God's goodness to others. And God is exalted by our public praise. Worship also provides us the opportunity to say publicly what we should be saying privately to Him on a daily basis. Worship is declaring God's goodness and God's greatness unashamedly, on purpose. But what should be our motivation for worship. In the first line of verse 4 in Psalm 92, David tells us his, his motivation. Worship is not something we should dread. It's a delight. It is something we should look forward to, to doing every day. I, I tell people all the time that, that I was a druggy kid. And they look at me real funny. And I'm like, yeah, because every Sunday my granny would drug me to church. You'll get it at lunchtime. But as my granny would drag us to church, we would sit there and we'd go on and on and on and on. And they would sing hymns, all five verses. And you're like eight or nine and you're like, oh, you can't, you can't tell time, but you know those hands on the clock are not moving. 
You've written on every scrap piece of paper that's in the back of the chair in front of you. Usually it was the visitor cards. I think, I think I'm probably the reason that churches don't leave those back there anymore. They're part of the bulletin. You've written on all this stuff. You made up funny names and Mickey Mouse visited or whatever. And you look at the clock and like two minutes has passed and they're just on verse three of a hymn. And then some old guy would get up and start yelling at you about something. And you're like, please let it be over. We looked at worship differently then. We, we look at it in terms of minutes that seemed like hours. And then we just kind of would endure it. That's what I remember of worship. The problem with me then and the problem with some of us now is we lack the joy that David talks about here. There should be joy in worship. I don't think we should have clocks in church. Matter of fact, I think, I think all time-telling devices should be left at the door in your car. Preach for hours. <laughs> and nobody would care because you wouldn't know what time it was. But you would have that joy that David talks about. Worship shouldn't be something that we endure, it should be something that we do willingly to proclaim, to share. Verses 5 through 15 in this psalm expand on verse 4, describing God's work, which should motivate us to worship Him joyfully. Verse 5 introduces a major section of the psalm. How great are thy works, O Lord! Thy thoughts, your purposes are very deep. David continues in verses 6 and 7. He says, A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. See, in the, the New American Standard Version, there's a colon at the end of verse 6. It indicates that what the stupid man doesn't understand is given to us in verse 7. The stupid man doesn't understand that the wicked thrive for a short time only to be destroyed. David is saying that the senseless man doesn't comprehend. He doesn't grasp the greatness of God as demonstrated by his works. He doesn't fathom the working of God and his purpose. And the man who can't understand God's work really tends to be more carnal in nature. The man that won't praise God for his works and his worth is really no better than a cow out in the field. Interestingly enough, in our society today, it's, it's the senseless and the carnal that are inclined to accuse Christians of being irrational. The sophistication of our day says Christians are those who have taken off their heads, if you will. But David reminds us that these fools are guilty of their own charges. They're totally unaware of the judgment which awaits them. That when the wicked sprout up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed. You see, viewed from a short-term perspective, the wicked sometimes seem to have it made. But from an eternal viewpoint, they've simply just had it. I like that language. They sprout up like grass. When does grass usually die off? In the fall, in the winter. There's a season for it. It might be beautiful and lush in the, in the summer, in the spring. You know, even in the spring, other, other flowers shoot up quick. They look pretty. It looks nice. David says, the, the, David says that those things that flourish quickly... It may seem like those people have it all. Their needs are met. 
that, that they're, they're going to go above and beyond. They can do what they want. But from a short-term perspective, they don't have much in store, do they? See, the pinnacle of this psalm was found in verse 8. It says, but, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. This statement, it's not only central to the message of the psalm, it's positioned at the center of the whole thing. Basically, we have 15, 16 verses, and there it is, right in the middle. You, O Lord, are on high forever. These other things are fleeting. Man may have substance here on earth, but without God, it's a fleeting substance. It's gone soon. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. These other verses all have two lines. This verse right in the middle has one line, and it's right in the middle of the psalm. It's also a center, theologically, if you will. You, O Lord, are on our most high. In verse 1, God is called, O Most High. In verse 8, He is said to be on high. In verse 15, David says, The Lord is upright. Do you see that? He's almost high. He's on high. He's upright, exalted on these praises of David. The fact that God is on high forever is the basis of our praise and our worship. It's also the basis of our praise of God's punishment of the wicked and His prospering of the righteous. In verse 6, the senseless man tends to elevate himself in his own eyes. Like grass, he sprouts up, but not to any lofty height. From this very puny height, the wicked man will plunge into destruction. In contrast, God is truly lifted up. He is on high forever. Because wicked men do not know or understand God, they can only compare themselves to other men. They think too highly of themselves. They fail to fear God and to dread their ultimate destiny apart from Him. David points out for us that God is most high. That this should be the basis of our worship, of our praise. And in verses 10 through 11, the psalmist describes what seems to be a, a recent experience in which God exalted him above his enemies. When you first read this, you think, oh, that's horrible. Because David talks about his enemies being destro destroyed. And then verse 10, he says, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. And my, eyes have, my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. And in verse 10, David uses these images to describe the way God exalted him. And by the way, there's a difference, apparently, in a wild ox and a tame ox. I'd look into it. It says, that, he says the, the, the wild ox, you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Apparently, the wild ox is a pretty mean beast. But David uses these images. He says, uh, a horn of the wild ox, and then the second is the anointing of his head with oil. And we find these examples in other parts of the Bible where the horn is employed as a symbol of strength and power. We see that in Deuteronomy 33, 17. Uh, we see that in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2, just to name a few. And then the scripture shows us where the ox triumphs over its prey. I always thought the ox's prey was like straw or hay or grain or something, but... Apparently, the wild ox, you don't want to fall in his path. David has prevailed over his enemies. He's writing a song for the Sabbath, having prevailed over his enemies. Not because of anything he did, but because of what God did on his behalf. 
that works for us as well. When we really get caught up in something, when we really find ourselves ensnared by something of the world, we can't overcome it on our own. But God steps in and He intervenes. He anoints our head with oil. He helps us through whatever that is. The ox triumphs over its prey with its horns. So David has prevailed over his enemies. In the Old Testament, anointing the head with oil signified an induction into a high office, such as a king or a priest. And verse 10 stresses exalting of David over his enemies. And verse 11 emphasizes that the enemies that God triumphed over were God's enemies, not just David's. David doesn't only point out that God destroys his enemies, he reminds us that our God delivers his servants and causes them to prosper. Now you may be thinking, I'm not prospering yet. There's a difference between prosper and spoilage. You will, by being faithful to God, you will prosper with a life eternally in heaven. People that don't put God first in their life can't say that. Prosper doesn't mean it's going to happen right now. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. Would you rather flourish here on earth or would you rather flourish in the courts of God? The word flourish in verse 7 here and also in verse 13 highlights the contrast that, should, that, it, that is intended. The wicked will flourish for just a time like the grass. They will perish quickly. But the righteous will flourish like trees in the courts of our God. The righteous, their prosperity is permanent. Now listen, this is not a prosperity message here. David's not talking about you getting rich because of the Lord. This is about eternity. It's, it's the courts of God where the trees are planted, where they prosper. I believe David is reminding the reader uh, that back then that the basis for the growth and prosperity of righteousness is their relationship with God. And that's what we need to be reminded of today as well. And it's our relationship with God that will transcend how we worship, how we live our life as a daily act of worship to Him. You see, His work is to cause uh, the wicked to perish. That's God's work, if you will. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but you will. The righteous will flourish. And what better place is there to grow than in God's court? By the way, this is not God's court, this room right here. It's not what we're talking about. It's not when we're at worship that we're most secure and our future prosperity is most certain. It is at worship. Not the moment of worship, the lifestyle of worship. Not at work. We may think we're prospering at work because we're getting a paycheck, we're getting promotions. That's not it. I think this is what God meant for men to learn when he gave them the Sabbath day to rest. To rest from work and to be in worship. You see, the prosperity of the wicked is short-lived, but the blessings of the righteous are eternal. The grass quickly sprouts and soon it perishes, but the tree, it's a more permanent plant. It's a very important point for those of us who tend to focus on ourselves rather than on God. God doesn't promise to bless us only for our own benefit. He blesses us so that we will have the motivation and the means to praise Him. Blessing is not so much 
an end as it is a means to an end. Its ultimate purpose is to promote our praise. The message of this psalm can be summed up into two categories. The goodness of praise and the grounds for praise. I want to review these important truths with you. See, praise is good. It's appropriate. Nothing is so becoming for the Christian as praise. Praise is also good because it's a delight to God. It's the cause of great joy and fulfillment in the life of the devoted believer. There's fulfillment and satisfaction in doing what we were created to do. We were created in His image. We were created to praise Him. We were created to worship. Psalm 92 provides us with two of these principles. In general, they can both be seen as the work of God and the eternal prosperity for righteous people. Ultimately, the purpose of God is to bring praise to His name through His creation. The righteousness may all, or excuse me, the righteous may also praise God because He is their avenger. We don't need superheroes. We don't need to take vengeance on our enemies. God's going to take care of that for us. God punishes the wicked and He exalts the righteous above their enemies. And you may be thinking, well, I'm being mistreated. It's okay. God, God will promote you above your enemies. Be careful, though. I have to emphasize this. Nowhere does this psalm teach us to seek revenge. It's not our place. Our difficulty in praising God for the destruction of our enemies arises from our failure to know who our, our true adversaries are. See, we, we tend to think that the person who doesn't agree with us is our enemy. We tend to think the person who lives differently than I do is my enemy, and it's not true. My, my only adversary is the devil. The people that I intersect with in life are not my adversary, even if they don't like what I like, even if they don't believe what I believe. They are not our enemy. We are not their enemy. It is on us to be a reflection of God to them, but they are not our enemy. Our only adversary is Satan. Most of us, we don't want any enemies, but we need to understand something. David is so allied with God that he recognizes that God's enemies are his enemies. That's where we fail. We fail to really know who our enemies are. We'll fight amongst each other for no real reason. We need to understand who our enemy is. We need to think that our enemies, or excuse me, we tend to think that our enemies are the people who are attempting to be accountable with us sometimes or who are attempting to sharpen us. When someone comes alongside you and questions maybe something that you're doing and, and right away we're like, well, they, don't, they can't judge me like that. We're not judging. I'm trying to straighten you out a little bit. Or you're trying to straighten me out a little bit. Accountability and, and sharpening one another as iron sharpens iron is not me being your enemy or you being my enemy. It's us putting ourselves in a place where we can come together and worship and praise our God. We need to recognize that our enemies are God's enemies. If we refuse to take sides, then the wicked will be our friends and God will become our enemy. If we refuse to take sides, the wicked will be our friends and God will be our enemy. Our problem today is that we have a misguided sense of mercy. God commanded the Israelites at their entrance into the promised land to absolutely abolish the Canaanites, every man, woman, child, and cattle, everything. 
You think, oh, that's horrible. This was an incredibly difficult assignment, no doubt. But I think it would be just as difficult for us as it was for the Israelites. More times than not, we fail to grasp who the enemy of God is. The Canaanites were a wicked people. It wasn't God just, just being mean or being a bully. They were a wicked people. They were to be destroyed because they were the enemies of God. The reason why we're hesitant to deal with God's enemies is because we fully don't appreciate God's righteousness. And if we're being honest, we don't share his hatred of sin. You see, if we foster sin in our own lives, then surely we'll be the first to take up a stone and throw it at others. That was the point of Jesus making that he made when he said to the religious leaders who were condemning the woman caught in adultery, whoever's without sin cast the first stone. See, we can't condemn the sins of others which we condone in ourselves. Our problem is, is friendship with the world. And when we have friendship with the world, it, it taints our relationship with God. I want to close out with this thought as the praise team comes forward this morning. We have seen that worship involves the declaration of God's loving kindness and His faithfulness morning and night. We have seen through Psalm 92 that the worship of God must be public. In verse 2, there's a, there's a call, if you will. David sees evangelism as an act of worship. Oh, wait a minute. I have to do something with it? Yes, you do. It's not just songs. It's not just communion. It's not just putting money in a plate. Your daily act of worship, according to David, is also evangelism, telling people about how great your God is. David stresses, it's a delight. I believe the note of delight in many times is, is missing not only in our worship, but sometimes delight is missing in our witnessing. Somebody asks us about God and we're not really delighted to tell them. Somebody asks, how is it we can endure something in, in life, in work, in in, in the world, and, and we're not real delighted to tell them about our God. I think that delight sometimes is missing from our worship. I think it's missing from our witnessing. And one thing I've learned in going deeper into Psalm 92 is that the core of everything we do should be worship. We should do it because we delight in God, because He, is, he has made, made us glad by the works of His hands. I think we oftentimes we try to motivate one another based on what we ought to do or what we have to do. God speaks of our service in terms of action. And it should be an action in our life that is delightful. His will is not only perfect, but it's good and it's acceptable. The purpose of evangelism is to praise, to glorify God. The salvation of souls is God's business. The primary purpose of evangelism is the sharing of the good news, a proclamation of the goodness of God, if you will. The reason people aren't attracted by our witness is because we perform it as a mundane chore, like taking out the trash. Oh, I told somebody about God today. Yeah. We're not real happy about it. Sadly, our witness is not an overflow of the gladness that should be in us because of what God has done in our lives. Sometimes our witness just kind of trickles out. It, it oozes like a sore. And it shouldn't do that. Sadly, our witness is not an overflow of gladness. It should be in response to God's work. Sometimes it's a chore. Sometimes it's the same way with our worship. 
I know that because sometimes I'm up here and as we're singing a song, I see you guys go like this. How great is our God? He's worthy to be praised. That's a good song. <laughs> or we're, we got our phone out. Everybody else is singing and it's like, ooh, got Candy Crush. <laughs> but you got your phone muted, so we just think you're looking up a Bible verse or something. But I see later you made a Facebook post that had nothing to do with church. <laughs> Going to Long John Silver's for lunch. I think that was at 11.05. We were singing then. Our worship should be an overflow of the working in God in our life. Not a simple chore that we grind out, that we check off on our to-do list for the week. Two hours, went to church. Sunday school was okay. Worship should never be a chore. It should be the foundation of everything we do. Not just on Sunday. Not just on a Sabbath, but on every day of our life. Ultimately, all of God's works are for one purpose. That through us will bring praise and glory, honor to his name. Our worship should be at the heart of everything we do every single day of our lives. If we rightly respond to the works of God in our lives, we will respond in worship through our actions. If we are rightly obedient to God, we will do it as an act of worship. We will do it with transparency. We will do it with intentionality. As we come to our response time this morning, let's consider the opening verse of Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. To declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. My prayer this week in preparing to go deep in the Psalms has been that we will all seek to be better worshipers of God. Not just in this room on Sunday, but every day. And not as a chore, but as our delight because of what He has done for us. Will you stand and sing our response song with us and respond to God's Word accordingly? And now I get to say my favorite thing. It's been great to be here with you all this morning. Take a moment and go deeper into Psalm 92. But now it's time to go. So as you go, remember the challenge I gave you. Read Psalm 95 every day for the next three weeks. You'll be amazed at what you see when you go deeper into God's Word. Will you sing this last song with us?